Welcome to Healing Wisdom, a Thursday morning talk show featuring guests sharing their stories and knowledge. We discuss the healing aspects of the arts, metaphysics, social justice, and adventure through all types of terrain. So join me, Pandora Peoples, here on WOMR 92.1 FM in Provincetown and WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. We're streaming worldwide at WOMR.org. My first guest today is Academy Award-nominated and Emmy-winning film producer and director. The film Precious, which she executive produced, received Audience Award and the Grand Jury Prize for Best Drama at Sundance Film Festival. The Apollo, a 2019 HBO documentary, explores African-American cultural and political history through the story of legendary Apollo Theater, and her directorial debut, the remix Hip Hop X Fashion, traces the impact of street fashion and African-American creativity on global cultural trends. Her documentary, Little Richard, I Am Everything, is screening this Saturday, April 15th at 7 p.m. at Water's Edge Cinema in Provincetown. There will be a reception and Q&A after the film. Welcome, Lisa Cortez. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Pandora. It's great to be in conversation about my favorite man of the hour, Little Richard. Little Richard, a complicated man, a genius, a, a, at the zeitgeist, a leader, a king, a king among men. He came up in a time where Black men were still being lynched in the South. He experienced violence at the hands of white police officers and was singing in drag shows at the time that Emmett Till was beaten to death because a white woman said that he, a Black teenager, had whistled at her. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the climate of racism in the 1950s Georgia and how it affected his persona and his gender identity. Well... Let's play a little bit with the timeline and and look at 1955, which is when Little Richard releases Tutti Frutti. And one of the things we talk about in the film is this is the same year, as you alluded to, where Emmett Till is murdered for whistling at a white woman. And Little Richard is moving through the South, performing sometimes for most of the times for segregated audiences where children, teenagers are going crazy. White girls are throwing their panties on the stage. You know, these lines are being crossed. And what's so interesting in the film is Little Richard says, yeah, that's why I wore makeup. That's why I made myself be more effeminate so as to survive. Uh, But we do have examples where he was arrested for swishing, as they said, you know, down a sidewalk. But, you know, I think little Richard, what I love about him is his rebelliousness, his self-invention, how in amplifying his femme presentation, he leans back into his teen years, which is when he was on the Chitlin circuit performing as a drag queen named Princess Lavone. 
So Richard is, is a story of great ingenuity and survival. Um, using your wits to get you through some of the most challenging situations. And I think there is something to be said about teenagers embracing him, teenagers with a different set or, or more broader values of acceptance than their parents had. So I think this 1955 moment is is challenging for black people for black bodies but richard is is a part of liberation in some ways when people see your film they'll learn about his drag identity as you mentioned and meeting his inspiration escarita who he met washing dishes at the greyhound bus station and he embodied camp but also taught him how to play piano I, I hope people go and Google Escarita to get some fabulous images. Escarita is living out loud, dressing out loud, performing out loud, is out. And for a, a young Richard in Macon, Georgia, is quite eye-opening because Escarita sees something in Richard. He sees something in Richard's drive, in his, his talent, helps with the piano playing, technique that Richard is bringing to rock and roll and, you know, is a mirror of possibility for Richard that there is something bigger outside of Macon and that he too could be a star. I'm wondering how the telling of the story evolved as you researched and as you assembled footage and as you did the interviews his background was very complicated because his father was an AME deacon, also a bootlegger, also had a nightclub, the tip and in. And his father threw him out on the street when he was 13 for wearing makeup and, as you said, being swishy. But on the other hand, when he started recording rock and roll, he spun his albums at his nightclub. Well, you know, I think that you know, we're, we're, there's even more, there's a bigger roller coaster ride that Richard is on. His for the bulk of his life, which is trying to reconcile, you know, godly music as opposed to sinner's music, rock and roll, and a sinner's lifestyle of being queer. It's funny that you talk about like his the contradictions in his father's life is like he's born into contradiction. He then has to navigate and and sometimes go be on this pendulum of like, okay, rock and roll no more. I'm going to Bible college. I'm cutting my hair. Then like, oops, I hear the call of rock and roll. I'm back there again. So, um, and yes, it's it. what is, you know, I think really poignant about this story is how Richard's father, who threw him out of their home um, for his queerness comes around and is very proud of his son, is going to buy him a car so he can get around. And tragically, his father is killed. You have great footage and great interviews. And we see concert footage of him with an English band that Brian Epstein put together. And then we also see wonderful footage of Sister Rosetta Tharp, who also had a similar conflict with her gospel persona and herself and her sexuality. It's maybe not as amplified as Little Richard's was, but she also, you know, had both music that was calling to her and, and had some inner turmoil. 
as well. So yeah, um, she did. Yeah, yeah. Did the telling of the story morph for you? Like, how did it shape up as you, you know, went on your journey as a filmmaker? Um, th- there certainly was growth, particularly as we discovered some inc- incredible archival performances, and then the personal recollections about Richard from artists like Mick Jagger and Tom Jones, Nona Hendricks, Billy Porter, and and his connection to Richard as a person and what he enabled Billy to do as a Black queer artist. So I think, you know, archival and interviews certainly added moments that you can't script that contributed to the to building a complex portrait of an icon that most people don't know that much about. They know the music, but they don't know the man. And and I think that the more time we spent with archival and discovered things and talked to these great people who had intimate connections with him, it really added to the richness of the storytelling. Yes, it's very entertaining. So Lisa Cortez, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, we've been speaking with her about her film, uh, Little Richard, I Am Everything, and it's screening at the Water's Edge Cinema, Saturday, April 15th, 7th. And uh, you're doing a reception and Q&A after, so everyone should come on down. Yes, I'm excited to come to P-Town. Woo! Yeah, yeah. My next guest is musician Mark Berger. He is going to be performing at DJ Dinah Mellon's Brick Hill House concert Saturday, April 22nd. Doors open at 7 o'clock. He'll be performing with Grammy-winning producer, guitarist, songwriter Steve Adabo. He'll be performing music from his American Western album Ride and also from his new soon-to-be-released album Folk Music. Call 508-255-3864 to reserve your spot. So Mark, what inspired your album Ride? I made a trip out west when I was 21. I was about to start law school. Pretty much saw all the big sights, was everywhere for about five minutes each, and lost my mind, came back to New York, and realized my life had changed because all I wanted to do was get back out there and that created an obsession with the West that has really existed for my whole life. And so I became a, you know, just my thing was getting into the remotest places I could in the West and on top of the highest mountains and uh, eventually got the idea of making an album of songs that reflected my connection to that mythic subject. And uh, that became Ride. Tell us about your soon-to-be-released album, Folk Music. So Ride came out and got a really, really excellent, wonderful reviews. It was really satisfying. Starbucks licensed the album. And so a lot of people came to say, well, this Western thing is like, this is what people know you for. So now you're going to make Son of Ride. But I just had no interest because I really had kind of poured myself into 
Ride. And I mean, I didn't have much more to say on it, so Son of Ride wouldn't have been as good as Ride. But I was always interested in the subject of what do these two words mean, and those two words being folk music. And so this is a different kind of spin. Folk music today, I think, has been co-opted into something which is very harmless and safe. You know, I'm so sensitive, I love my guitar. Whereas I think that if you look at Woody Guthrie and even go back to Whitman, Walt Whitman, folk music is something that should be, you know, challenge authority and challenge the status quo. And this album's idea is really that it doesn't matter what it sounds like so much as that it do that. And it really takes all its concept from a quote in the preface to the 1855 edition of Leaves of Grass, where Whitman said, it is the attitude of the greatest poet to horrify despots and cheer up slaves. And so for my purposes in this album, as long as it horrifies despots and cheers up slaves, I'm going to call it folk music. So some of the tracks on this album are pretty heavy rock, and then there's a ballad that Ridgie Havens did in his concerts for 20-something years. So very eclectic, very wide-ranging, but also very subversive would be a good word for it. So what can folks expect at DJ Dynamelon's Brick Hill House concert series April 22nd? Well, I'm bringing a great guitar player and just a brilliant record producer who's won a Grammy. His name is Steve Adabo. If you've heard of Suzanne Vega, he's the reason why. He's going to play guitar with me, sing some harmony vocals, play a few of his own songs before the concert starts, and we'll be just mashing the songs from Ride and folk music together, telling some really cool Western stories and getting the audience involved in a sing-along at least one. And a good time should be had by all. We're speaking with journalist and author of Wampanoag Art for the Ages, traditional and transitional, also writer-director Lee Roscoe and producer Janet Murphy Robertson. We're talking about dreams from a planet in peril and also the book. So welcome, ladies. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. First off, Lee, can you talk about your work helping save 300 acres of Wampanoag tribal land? <laughs> well, that was a long time ago, but uh, about 20 years ago, around 1999, 2000, by around 2001, a group of us put together largely by the late Jim Gould, Ralph Baker, myself, formed Keep Untamed Santuit Pond, and with the help of Peter Myrick, with whom I was living at the time, who was the editor-in-chief of Mass Wildlife and worked for the state for, for Mass Wildlife, we got in touch with Bob Durand at the state. We put together a whole coalition, and the very short story is that we managed to prevent a golf course on land uh, around Santuit Pond that covers three different towns, and some of that is sacred to the Wampanoag. Some of it is where a very sacred site is, is to them, so it was really gratifying that we got that saved. We're going to talk about your book that features both modern art and also traditional craft and art and the sort of spiritual aspects of 
art and how everyday objects have been infused with meaning and symbolism throughout the Wampanoag culture. And that's true for indigenous cultures. And I would even venture to say that that is an aspect that we've forgotten in, in Western cultures that originally were more connected to the land. And when we were making things from the natural world, we had a respect and reverence for it. And that sort of imbued our respect for what we were creating and what we put into our everyday atmosphere. With regard to your film, it's an experimental art film. And I would love for you to talk about the impetus behind telling about the state of the planet. Well, I can start with that. I wanted to explore planetary abuse and the underlying causes because as I often say, the earth is screaming and we don't hear her because we're too busy parasitizing her with our consumption and greed. So I had these four disparate pieces and Janet and I um, became collaborators on creating them into a unified piece that would explore this theme using many different styles, using cartoon, hyperbole, lyricism, realism, commedia dell'arte. Lee had written these wonderful plays over a long period of time, I think starting back in the 1980s. Lee is a longtime activist and environmentalist. And uh, when we first connected on these, the challenge was to bring these plays into a, a dramatic environment. They hadn't been in a theatrical environment in the past. And we embarked on this uh, really interesting, challenging journey right in the middle of the pandemic. And so uh, the opportunity didn't exist to bring it to a theatrical stage. And I had been making films really since mainly documentaries uh, for the past almost 15 years. So Lee and I decided that we would transform these plays into individual shorts. And that was the first phase in what we what we embarked on. And one of those shorts was recognized in a fairly major way with some film festivals, including the prestigious Chelsea Film Festival in New York, where Lee and I had the opportunity to actually go and walk the red carpet, which was a great deal of fun, <laughs> and also the LA Independent Shorts Awards. And then we're continuously evolving these shorts and we decided that wow we need to we need a frame to unite them and that's the current version that we're putting out to the world and that's going to be April 15th at the Brewster Ladies Library it was really it was Janet who conceived we we said we need a frame but it was Janet who conceived of the frame that these are dreams that a passionate environmentalist is having. And it really unifies them because in dreams, there is a disjunct atmosphere often, which there are in the plays. In fact, uh, it's been compared a little bit to Waking Life, the Linkletter film. But had Janet not come up with that idea of unifying them as dreams, it would not have worked as well. And it's really interesting because audiences are reacting. They they love it. And but what's interesting is that many people have different dreams that they like the best. Oh, I like the first and the last one the best. Oh, I like the one with the man the best. Oh, I like the one that was the cartoony, 
you know, class war in 10 minutes won the best. So that's really fun to see reflect kind of people's personalities off of what we've created. Mm -hmm. We thought perhaps that uh, we would reach even more people by putting them into a dreamlike context, because some people might not want to get that straight out message that might be interpreted as we're instructing the audience about environmental hazards. Some people might be more receptive to the message with this, what is a fairly thin fictional layer, but it is a an opportunity for the viewer to to say, ah, oh, okay, so this passionate environmentalist is describing her feelings and her dreams. And I think we have hit it there that the reaction, I think, is more enthusiastic, even more enthusiastic than the individual shorts themselves when first released. The first one is in Spirits of the Old World and the New. There's a lot of indigenous. I've been very influenced through my life. There's a, a by things indigenous, and been involved in things indigenous. So in a way, there's a relationship between Wampanoag art for the ages, traditional and transitional. And yes, what you said about the book revealing the fusion between the material and the spiritual is is very true. There's a a joy and independence and creativity in creating your life from and in reciprocity with the natural world. And the arts reveal that they're not a Western construct to hang on a wall. And yet there are artisans in the tribe and amongst indigenous people who do use Western art kind of to reveal their own traditions, their own sacred traditions. And so that art often has extreme power. But in the film, the first one is one Native American spirit, Mishipeshu, and some of the old world gods meet on, on the shore of the Atlantic to um, figure out a problem and to confront human beings to ask us to, to change. And in the second dream, the cage is the kind of Commedia dell'arte. It's very stylized. It's in black and white. And it's really a class war in 10 minutes with, with all the strange... I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. I All that horrible polarization that we have, it's kind of a spoof of that. And then the third one is an indigenous man who's in despair over his life and earth. And will he be saved by an act of kindness? Can the earth be saved by an act of kindness? Can humans, our species? And then the fourth one, the environmentalist, who's been dreaming all of these, enters the fourth one herself. And that is me as Earth confronting my abusers, the politicians, the corporate, the corporate guys, the technocrats who are abusing me. And it has a kind of wild ending, which we're not going to give away. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about how you chose the superimposition? and the cartoon style, and then also how you came at the idea of doing everything in that first-person narrative style. And I'll start by saying that, again, if it hadn't been for Janet coordinating that through line and her dedication and her hundreds of hours of post-production, this would never have come to fruition. 
but the impetus behind uh, the warning, which is the last one, a lot of it has to do with my vision of theater, which is um, tikka, a little bit of Tikkun Alam, repairing the world. Um, and I'm, I'm a very secular Jew, but that part of uh, the religion I really admire, and a lot of cultures have that. And and I've been very influenced by George Gross, Eke Homo, my father brought back from the Second World War. Um, he was a German expressionist who kind of predicted the rise of the Nazis in his savage cartoons. And so I was emulating uh, when I wrote it, his, his cartoons, his hyperbole. And then Janet was able to create that pictorially. So it was a real fusion of what I wanted as the writer and what she was able to create. Uh, as the filmmaker. Working backwards, the one about the indigenous man was um, people, people have many, many indigenous friends I've known have been between two worlds, you know, who realize what is happening to their planet, but also feel displaced, feel like they are aliens in their own land. And oh, I want to say I'm not indigenous. I wrote Wampanoag Art for the Ages. Uh, I had three respected tribal elders vetted the book. And I was very, very lucky to have access. Working backwards, the the cage was just, I don't know, it just came out of me one day. It was very quickly written because I was amused and tired of seeing all the wars between upper class, lower class, and middle class people and the hatreds. And then the first one, again, it just came out of me after... So many years of teaching environmental ed, of being involved in environmental issues, of, of knowing a lot about what was happening in the oceans, uh, the diminishment of biodiversity. Yes, climate change is very important, but there's a more holistic approach. There's so much damage to the planet in so many ways. And this was ocean-centered. Um, it was actually written for the Blue Institute. It won a prize there. So I wanted an ocean theme, and it just, almost like a dream, it just came out of me with these characters. They spoke to me, and the whales spoke to me, and the, and the language needed to be heightened. Because part of the way I look at theater, I think, did I mention aversion therapy? It's me trying to wake people up so that they'll do something. And it's a little bit of, of Aristotle's idea of moving people through through the catharsis of, of pity and terror, and a little bit Brechtian in terms of appealing to people's reason as well. One of the things we share is um, idealism about social justice, and Janet's film, Journeys in the Light, is about BIPOC people on Cape Cod, and nobody's done that, and it's, it's really beautiful, and it's an important film. It's a documentary, unlike ours, which is fiction. That too, uh, Lee contributed majorly to that in terms of uh, really broadening and deepening the story about the Wampanoag that's included in Journeys in the Light. In this new version, it has much more thanks to Lee's uh, work on that area. That's Janet, happening May and... 7th at the Jacob Sears Library. It's going to be shown. So we're excited about that too. Excellent. May 7th, Jacob Sears, and then at the Brewster Ladies Library. Dreams from a Platinum Peril is going to be at the Brewster Ladies Library on April 15th at 2 p.m. And we're going to have Laura Kelly join us of POCA, and she's going to talk about local solutions to water problems. 
That's part of our distribution plan for the film. We want to collaborate in part, not exclusively, but collaborate with environmentalists who would do, for example, a talk back at the end of the program. Uh, or even use the film as an opportunity to raise funds. Thank you and congratulations. Folks can go to the Brewster Ladies Library on April 15th. It's from two to four. And the book is available all over the place on the Cape. And we have a website too. You can find us to order it through the website as well. And And Journeys in the Light, May 7th, Jacob Sears Library. Very cool. So can folks find all this information and more out on your website, which is? Yes, artisanmusicians.org. Also at the bookstores and on Amazon. I'm honored to have a book talk April 20th at the JFK Memorial Library in Hyannis. It's a book talk with slides and a signing. April 20th, (laughs) noon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. The full podcast will be available at HealingWisdomRadioShow.com. You've been listening to Healing Wisdom at Outermost Radio. All of our shows are podcast at WOMR.org. Also check out HealingWisdomRadioShow.com. And contact me at Pandora at WOMR.org. Our theme music is provided by Mazen. You can find her website at MazenMusic.com. That's M-A-E-S-Y-N 